You're listening to the SOAS Festival of Ideas podcast on SOAS Radio. Welcome to the SOAS Decolonizing podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and on this series, we'll be talking all things decolonizing SOAS. Now, I'm fairly sure that that term isn't as familiar to all of us as it might need to be going forward. So in this first episode, I'm joined by Dr. Amini Yakin, who is a reader in Urdu and post-colonial studies here at SOAS University of London, and a member of the SOAS Decolonizing Group. She's also the director of the Festival of Ideas, which will be exploring all things decolonizing in the coming fall term. So welcome, Amina. Thank you, Miriam. It's very good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. So first off, for those who might not be familiar with the term decolonizing, what does decolonizing something actually mean? Okay, so decolonizing goes back to the political freedom from colonial rule, if you want to think about it in terms of a chronology, and uh, freedom from colonial rule in Africa and Asia, in starting with the Indian independence in 1947 and the partition. And um, it's also connected to the Bandung Conference in 1955, led by Sukarno, where African and Asian countries came together. And it's also about the context that we live in now in terms of um, decolonizing the different power structures that we are still with, despite the movements of freedom from colonial rule taking place. And and you've got to remember, you've also got sort of leftover contexts from that, like Palestine and Kashmir, which are still unresolved. When we talk about decolonizing today, people are not just specifically talking about that chronology. It's very important in, in terms of how you understand your relationship, but it's also about the, the way we live in the modern world, how we understand ideas of modernity, and what is the history, what is the context of history, and what kind of things that are connected within modernity, like racism, sexism, inequality, social justice, you know, how do we think about that through through a decolonizing view. And and so for those who might be wondering, you know, why would you need a decolonizing project in the UK, which, you know, was a colonizing force rather than a colonized force? I suppose many people might say, well, you know, it makes perfect sense to decolonize societies that were colonized, if, if that's even possible. And, and for those who are interested, that itself is a much wider debate. Um, but 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 what does decolonizing the former centers of empire mean? And what's the logic behind that? Well, that's a good question, Miriam, because it takes us back to the history of colonizing, because it uh, to talk about it from the metropolitan center, which uh, housed um, the British Empire. And, and I suppose one of the things I should say is within decolonizing, it's not just the British Empire that we think about. But in this specific case, because you you brought me to that question, I'll talk about that because it assumes that everything is fine if we if we don't go back to that period. But things are not fine, and you have a lot of migrations. You have the history of slavery. You have the history of uh, multicultural. Multicultural communities, migrants, refugees who live in the UK and whose movements are tied 
and embedded in those very violent histories of colonialism. So therefore, it's extremely relevant and it's extremely important. I mean, I myself think of um, the lectures that uh, Akil Mubembe did at um, WITS in South Africa on decolonizing knowledge. And he was talking, those lectures were in conversation with the Roads Must Fall movement at Cape Town and, and also um, with another project at the University of Stellenbosch. And he was really talking about quite a lot of things in there. But one of the things I'll pick up there is that necessity of demythologizing whiteness. And you talk about our location in the center of London right now. And that is a place that is defined by those relationships of power that embed certain type of authority and a certain kind of supremacy that is connected to the movement of capital, to the ownership of land that goes back to the colonial period. And therefore, uh, Mbembe you know, refers to the historic context of Cecil Rhodes and the fact that he says that to be black is a liability but yet, uh, you know, with the statue that was there in Cape Town University, it was that very context of how did that, how is it that there is this person who becomes the person that knowledge is associated with, make the person whose country that they have been a part of and benefited from not be a center of that conversation? Why are they being decentered from that conversation? So one of the things that we need to think about is that how did we get to where we are in Britain today? Who are the people who make up British society? And also when we think about modernity and we think about colon colonialism and coloniality, if I can borrow a academic phrase, uh, there are contexts here of civilizations, right? And civilizations that connect with a particular idea of normalization that are embedded in ideas of Christianity and ideas of the secular that pit this East-West dynamic and that make us think of a, of a world that is black and white. And therefore, the question is, in that world, the context of whiteness is very much the way that the framework through which we understand everything, but it is not the context of blackness that we understand things through. And it's to make that change that power structure to, to say, actually, no, we want to look at things differently because only when we look at those things differently, only when we understand that history, can we move forward? Can we actually have a kind of society that we want to be in today? So to pick up a bit on what you've just described, so it sounds like there's there's two kind of main ideas I'm hearing. One is about sort of decentering uh, one particular perspective on the world, which has, for historical reasons, had undue influence, primarily, I guess, for military, military and economic reasons. And, and, and so decentering de that specific perspective, which has held been held for, for very long to be almost like an authoritative perspective uh, on the world. Uh, and the other one would be to widen up the perspectives. And obviously, the two are connected by by taking into account points of view, um, ideas, um, thinkers whose, um, I, whose ideas, whose bodies of work have maybe been marginalized because of where that center of, uh, of economic and military power has resided with does that sound right to you? 
Yes, I think so. If, if I've understood the question, which is to say that it overrides the people that are coming from those contexts, from those civilizational contexts that are not to, to that are not sort of located in the in the West as we recognize it and see it today, but have a longer history. And I mean, you know, there have been lots of people, um, lots of thinkers who have been quite instrumental in how we understand decolonizing as it's talked or decoloniality as it's talked about by scholars um, such as Mbembe and, well, Walter Mignolo comes to mind. And also going back, though, to people like Franz Fanon, like Ngugi Wafthiongo, and also, I, I, I mean, I suppose I, I don't want to kind of do lots of names, but, but is that what you were asking me? Were you asking me to name some kind of influences? No, that, that's always helpful, isn't it, for people who are listening who might be interested in, in, in hearing some references that they could look into. But I was sort of just thinking about how, you know, if we, if we were going to sort of summarise what the decolonial movement is about is is there is there a way to summarize it and if not why is it such a complicated um kind of set of ideas to get our head around i think it's a good point because it's it's about activism and it's about changing it's about a combination of theory and practice so I think in the past, maybe you could say that when we've looked at it through a post-colonial lens, sometimes we've emphasized theory more and ignored practice in the process. But I mean, certainly speaking uh, from my own uh, perspective, as somebody who's worked on women and women's uh, poetry and women's histories and how do women contribute to knowledge production of a particular national environment and you know how do they get get left out why do they get get left out and what are the contexts and therefore the it is something that requires quite a lot of reordering of priorities, the priorities that you work with. So I quite like, you know, for example, the work that Reniedo Lodge has done in why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, if I remember the title correctly. But actually then the book, you know, does the more you talk, the more you understand that you have to have a dialogue, a cultural dialogue and a an understanding of those structures of social justice, of civil society. I mean, we can think about the way policing works. We can think about how securitization works, about how certain groups get understood within a, a moment, you know, and how that moment can connect to past histories. For example, if you're coming from a, a Muslim context in this country, and you think about something like the prevent agenda and how prevent is in part of a whole narrative of the securitization after the war on terror, of understanding people's movements, but also of asking the, the aim is to make communities more cohesive. But in the process, what's happened is it's made communities spy on each other and it's created distrust. Suspect communities, I think, is one of the terms I've heard used around the strategy yeah precisely so it's that kind of knowledge production which then requires you to understand things not just in a black and white way that this is you know the way I see it and this is the way you see it you have to open up all those structures of, 
of citizenship, of identity formation, of, you know, how does racism take place in society? How do people recognize the other in society? What is the self that we define ourselves through? What are those, what are those things? You know, we, um, there's kind of uh, lots of things that have come to light in in this country um, over the years, but uh, certainly it's true that we've had issues of um, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in both the parties that we have in um, both in, in party in power and in the shadow, and and then there are kind of more endemic issues of racism of black and white racism, you know, how do we get to the bottom of those issues? How do we get to make people understand that until we tackle them, we will not be enabling or ensuring that our young people who are coming through from very early age, that they actually understand how important this conversation is and how they interact with people and how they go on to then um, contribute to the way we live in this world. So, you know, and whether capital can, the ownership of land and capital is as innocent as we think it is, or as it's made to look. And and so, I mean, the decolonizing movement has obviously been in the headlines. You mentioned Cecil Rhodes. His statue at Oxford has um, been brought down just just very recently after well over a year, if not two years, I think, of, of campaigning by primarily students um, at, at Oxford. But I think that that galvanized quite a fair share of people. And we know that that has now sparked a wider debate around the question of statues and symbols and many people questioning whether whether, you know, tearing down statues is, you know, a, a vital part of the movement. I mean, where where does the remove Removal of statues like that of Cecil Rhodes fit into the decolonizing agenda? I think that's an important question, and it's a question that divides a lot of people, doesn't it? In terms of uh, divides people between what is perceived as the radical left and the left and the right, as it were. So I think it's a it's a complicated question, and it's a question that uh, I myself, you know, have found changing positions over. And I think it really does vary from um, context to context. But certainly in the case of Cecil Rhodes, I mean, going back to that question about Oxford and the statue of Cecil Rhodes, there's something that I want to go back to when I think it was to do with the figures that Oxford University released about or didn't release uh, the data to show that, uh, and this was um, something that, and this is this speaks about social divides in this country, right? This speaks about the real class race divide in this country. And uh, when this goes back to when the Labour MP and former education minister David Lammy, who was also a SOAS alum, he accused. Oxford of social apartheid after partial data was was released to show that 10 out of 32 colleges did not offer a place to a black British student with A-levels in 2015. Data also showed socioeconomic and regional divides underpinning sort of basically a sense that white social engineering is really cemented by the admission criteria of Britain's top-ranked institution. You know, Oxford, in their defense, said, oh, this data has got to be understood qualitatively rather than quantitatively, and they 
blamed uh, the low attainment for disadvantaged students at school as schools as a barrier. So I think that's the heart of the question behind the statues, if you want to really um, get to it. It's about the barriers that exist within our society. And in upholding those statues without putting some kind of change, transformative change and saying, yes, we will change this. You know, I've had, for example, students in my classroom, and these are students from all all kinds of backgrounds, students from uh, backgrounds where not, uh, you know, they're not coming from elite high socioeconomic backgrounds, black students, white students. And I've asked them, you know, close your eyes and tell me, where is it that you would like to be uh, institutionally to get your education if you had a chance, if you had a chance to rethink your life or rethink your university? And, you know, most of them and the poorest of them will want to be, and the answer was Oxford University. So you tell me, what is wrong? Where are we going wrong in our education system, in the way that we uphold uh, certain types of influences? Yes, I understand that we have to understand the history of this country, of this island where we live and the people that were at the heart of its different uh, types of movements in in the world, in in the period of um, empire, but also empire's one part of Britain's history, and it needs to look at the overall part and see where are we going wrong? You know, where are we going wrong in this system? Students have been a, a, an important force in pushing for some of these changes. Um, we saw that at Oxford and, and similarly at SOAS, I think so, um, SOAS, it was students initially who began pushing for a decolonizing agenda. For those who, who aren't familiar with um, how the movement kind of emerged and has developed at SOAS, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, who, how did it all begin, the whole decolonizing um, quest? And, and how has it ended up becoming kind of an official working group, which, uh, you know, has, as far as I'm aware, backing, you know, from, from the highest authorities within SOAS? To give you a brief potted history, it started, it was uh, initiated by students, actually, uh, the Decolonizing the Mind Society, who were, and so as students have always been very vocal, they've been very active. And I think we've got a tradition of activism and research that is a very important part of our uh, history as an institution. Um, but we also have the institution that is embedded in, uh, in a colonial past and has uh, its past history that it's connect, that connects it to the legacy of empire, as it were, to the knowledge as power question. So anyway, the students, uh, the student movement is also driven very much with the need to decolonize the curriculum and to say what we are learning is not exactly what we came to learn. And we want to not study a curriculum that is um, white, but want to study a curriculum that is more reflective of some of the things we'd like to um, connect with. So I think that's always a um, interesting um, and uh, it can be energizing, powerful and empowering. And it was, and we, there was a groundswell and, you know, I joined the group at the time and there were a lot of people at SOAS who've been working on this uh, or 
taking part in this type of thinking over the years, but across the board, you know, within all departments and in uh, centers, it's not always the case that everyone is working from a decolonized perspective. So you get a slightly uneven type of experience, perhaps as a student, because you're not getting that kind of instruction in all your modules. Uh, so, so at that point, the group was formed informally, and then um, it was uh, felt and um, that the group would need funding to go forward. And uh, we were asked to develop a vision, and we all sat down. And this was a group of students and academics, as well as um, staff members, who drafted a vision in which we looked at the question of what were the things that we needed to do. And this is what the decolonizing teaching toolkit comes out of. You know, there's been lots of excellent work that has come out of student initiatives within the decolonizing group. And there was there were, you know, lots of things that we uh, wanted to change or what were our um, ideas within the decolonizing vision. And one of the other things that we wanted to do was to look at the structural contexts of our policies and our practices and to make sure that we have better understanding of that. So basically, you know, to try and address policies to redress pay, workload, career paths, differentials, to address kind of structural inequalities. And uh, to look at attainment gaps, you know, that was the big thing. That was the work that Valerie Amos was also very um, kind of active and um, in and contributed to at the national level. Yeah, but Valerie Amos, the director of SOAS, or former director of SOAS, I guess, quite soon. Yes, that's right. And she's uh, leaving for Oxford. So it's, um, I think the thing that we also wanted to do was to look at the research agenda, to revise the research agenda, which, which we're getting more active about on questions related to decolonization, and also to look more closely at our relationships with the global south in the work that we do, and to really emphasize the co-production of knowledge within that within those relationships and to build public engagement with communities and the work going on around these um, these types of decolonizing concerns and we you know there's been a, a lot of small groups that the decolonizing working group has funded through this initiative and then you come back to the so then I can kind of also highlight some of the controversies you know the any vision is is not a vision without controversies and disagreements within it. And uh, one of the disagreements within this vision, because this vision had to go to um, to EB and to be approved by um, to, to in order to get the funding. And uh, Deborah Johnston, who was the former pro director of learning and teaching, took on the cause of the decolonizing um, agenda, and she. Uh, was taking this forward. And uh, we had in the original vision also um, phrase the phrase reparations. And uh, that was something that was uh, we were asked to reconsider and to rethink at the time. That was uh, that was the feedback that came back to us from from the top. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the the whole the reparations conversation seems to be a stumbling block um you know more more widely doesn't it um it seems to be that you can talk about many things but the r word continues to be 
a kind of a line a line we're, we're unable to uh to even get get very close to so so obviously there's been some negotiation of what the decolonizing um agenda is i mean is it worth pointing out because you know to put all cards on the table i'm also part of the working group that that obviously within the group itself there are different visions of what decolonizing means right H- how does that work do you think in in, in practice in terms of I suppose some people who are looking at the movement from the outside might raise concerns around, well, this is a movement of deconstruction. Great, deconstruct, but what are you reconstructing? What are you gonna what are you gonna replace what you what you pull apart with? And is it possible to do that without a unified vision for what you're reconstructing? I think that's a good question because that to think, to reflect on, because it's definitely true that it's the working group is is not a group that sits there and agrees on everything. But then it wouldn't be a good working group. It wouldn't be an effective working group if it did. One of the strengths of it that it it's very interrogative. It asks uncomfortable questions and difficult questions sometimes. And also, uh, yes, there are different layers within institutional structures. And it's true that what is being discussed in a decolonizing working group may not be something that is met with the same enthusiasm in a department meeting. And and also uh, that students perhaps, you know, I don't know always um, how enabled students are sort of feeling in terms of being part of the working group. I think they're always there and they contribute and they've always been at the heart of it. And that's really the momentum comes from the students. I see it very much as a grassroots type of, of group that is that shouldn't reproduce what the kind of for example, the more formal equality and diversity structure might have to do as an institutional body. But I think what this can do is is very important work in reaching out to not just within our institution, but working across institutions within this country and other countries to really think about what is it that we are doing with education today? Where do we need to be? And we're clearly not where we need to be because, you know, students raise these questions. We raise these questions. We've had um, Things that are structurally very important to the decolonizing working group that that maybe, you know, we are not talking about very loudly. For example, the cleaners uh, campaign that has been an important part of SOAS's history to, to try and redress issues of justice. And uh, SOAS has had a history of working on themes related to gender, on race and on sexualities. But it's... Uh, Possibly not always the things that uh, Zoaz is always talked about uh, in with reference to, and I think those are some of the things that we need to join up more in terms of what we are doing at the level of our disciplines and what we're talking about at this level of theory and practice. So, so I would say the work is not done, and there's a lot of yes, the buy-ins are always something that we're going to have to negotiate as we go along. And this is the question of, you know, it it brings me back to that question of white privilege. The educational institution, the higher educational institution is often informed by white privilege. I mean, there's, there's lots of issues with the universities, with this current government as well, aren't they? Because suddenly decolonizing becomes seen as this kind of radical uh, left path that must be blocked and stopped because this is going to 
you know, be the unseating of the unseating of the Tory party. But that's not really what what's um, happening for everybody in those groups. You know, there are some very, very important deep seated conversations about what is felt to be the epistemic violence that people are want to change and want to address in their relationship to where they are. Yeah, and I, and and it's interesting that you um that that, that I suppose it's it it is very much a, a push and pull for power and and where that center of power lies. And interestingly, that kind of mirrors the the sort of wider decolonial movement, right? Of of, of decentering um power so so it's no it's no surprise really that we would see a tug of war there i mean there was a, some recent stats that that only a third of universities are um taking on the, the the kind of decolonial challenge as it were does that surprise you not really it doesn't surprise me because it requires investment and it requires a rethinking and it also makes people very edgy because it means that you have to do things in a different way and none of us like change uh you know we we all like things to continue in the way that they are uh but like i said you know there are broader issues here of how universities are funded and within this country and although we have part privatization but we also have you know a kind of increasing divide in access in terms of who can actually get to university who has the means to get an education what does it mean you know and and there are other sort of um, things that are being manipulated within the sector to make the humanities less and less relevant which makes critical thinking less relevant and therefore when you don't have critical thinking do you know what I mean? Like decolonizing um, brings a certain level of critical thinking that makes people quite uncomfortable. And it perhaps it's easier to not be uncomfortable in these very tough financial times. What do we think a decolonized SOAS might look like? How different would a decolonized SOAS be to the university that we know today? I think SOAS is on the journey already on decolonizing, and we 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 get a lot of students from um, African and Asian um, communities, both here and overseas, and we have a particular identity and reputation that we're identified with. And but I think where we perhaps are not doing as much, or not perhaps we're definitely not doing as much as we could, is to really connect and to um, sort of make more of that conversation about Black Lives Matter, for example, within SOAS, you know, what do those, how are we responding to those kinds of changes and I think that that's a journey that we're undertaking and we're thinking. And so as in the future, it will it will always have its history. I don't think it can get rid of its history because that's, you know, the, the kind of institutional connection. But I think what it can do is to have a better dynamic. I think it was when Kenan Mullick came actually to SOAS and he did the interview with uh, with Mira and it became all about SOAS curriculum and that SOAS students don't really want to do have 
philosophy like Kant and uh, they just want to sort of do more polemical stuff. So I think those perceptions and those kinds of understandings of SOAS can can only change actually through our student voices as well as our staff engagements with how we put across that message of decolonization and how we put across that message of theory and practice. So we're not just, uh, you know, let's make that co-production commitment with working in the global south much more on the agenda, which it is increasingly so. And we have, for example, um, the scheme, the Professors of Practice scheme that's been initiated by um, Andrea Cornwall, and uh, it's bringing in different voices and people who would not be coming in through traditional routes, but people who are very important to the university space and whose voices need to work in tandem with us, with scholars, and to just say that scholarship is, is you know, can be all sorts of things. It, it doesn't have to be just one thing. The, the objective is really to try and reorder positionalities within the school, to think about, you know, sexualities, to think about inequalities, to think about social justice. And I think those are all things that we do work on in our research. I think difficult to predict exactly the kind of curriculum that SOAS would have, but certainly I think it could be a curriculum that leads the way for a lot of places in learning and uh, coping with the change and that is necessary with decolonizing knowledge. And do we believe that the decolonizing of the university can set the premise for a wider decolonization of society? Is this, is this a broader project than the, than the university? Absolutely. I think the, uh, it is definitely a broader project than just the university. It's not something that stops at the university. And I think it's one of those projects in which we do want to bring the university out of the ivory tower and say, actually, these are the things that matter and these are the social injustices that we're living with still after so many years of colonization and um, things really must change in in the way society works. I mean, why are we struggling with models of governance, with models of citizenship? How do we make it a, a more equal and just society? And I think it's our role as educators and as well as people who are you know, thinking critically and engaging with those, with people at all levels of um, society to, to try and make that a more meaningful relationship and to make this, this divide between, you know, this is only something that a radical left does to not, you know, to, to, to really shift that thinking and to make it a more open space, you know, something that everybody can and does want to access. And I think that's maybe it's a very, what do you call it, ambitious project, a very idealistic project. But I think it's a project that we need. I mean, I have children in primary school and secondary school, and and it's very sad, you know, to see the society in which we live in and all the kind of policing that they have to live with, all the securitization that they have to live with, uh, the borders, the migrants, the, you know, the, the kind of the, the fact that people can be um, disowned and uh, sent back home, uh, you know, for um, 
we've got the Windrush context, you know, all of that has to change to make this a world that we are all comfortable with living in. And, and, you know, also, I mean, one of the other things that we are thinking about within the Festival of Ideas is also the work that SOAS colleagues do, for example, on climate change as well. So we're not just talking about critical thinking in kind of fields of philosophy and history. And, and, you know, philosophy and history are also connected to ideas of climate and climate change and all those. And, And so just give us a little overview of what we can expect at the Festival of Ideas. We have um, an exciting range of activities and events ranging from academic research panels to keynote lectures to masterclasses, as well as some virtual a virtual debate that we'll have on decolonizing for and against. We'll also have a performance uh, by Butcher Boulevard on um, decolonizing, not just a buzzword. We're going to have a panel on uh, race and writing. So we have quite an exciting range of things that will be taking place over the week in the festival. And we'll we'll be conversing with, with people on the panel who are talking, colleagues who will be talking about cross-cultural encounters, range from Africa to Asia, and, and we'll also be in conversation with the incoming SOAS director from WITS, and uh, he will be uh, talking particularly about the context of the Global South, and I'm very excited about that because it will be the, uh, Professor Adam Habib's vision that we will be engaging with and how he understands um, decolonizing lo- knowledge in the context of Global South flows. So that kicks off the festival on the Monday. I do hope all of you will tune in and it will set the tone for the rest of the week. And we will end on the Saturday with the big debate for and against decolonizing knowledge. And um, we have Kahinde Andrews, who is actually going to be talking against decolonizing knowledge. So we're excited about that. And we also have other panelists uh, who are going, I'm going to keep a surprise so that you have an opportunity to look it up on our website and our and on our Eventbrite pages that give you the latest information. We also have masterclasses and I'm really excited about the masterclasses because we have a range of things happening here in terms of the masterclasses on theatre, on script writing, on the novel writing and on poetry. So please join in and listen to these wonderful people from Suheima Manzur Khan to Eileen Conant to Minu Gore to our in-house resident author Dr. Somnath Badabial and um, also a literary agent who will be in conversation with him. So um, I think we have quite a lot to offer and we are looking forward to the events as they happen and, and the program. And we also have a big highlight is Yasmin Ali High Brown, who will be in conversation about her book, Ladies Who Punch. I, I really like that title. I think we are in that uh, time of equalities, of a change in our women's lives. And these are women in the diaspora and in the UK who are talking about it, uh, who she is in conversation with in her book that she's put together as a book about ladies who punch. So please do tune in for that as well. 
thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the SOAS Festival of Ideas podcast. Be sure to check out all the events and recordings on the SOAS Festival of Ideas website.